David violated the prohibition against numbering Israel. He treated every Israelite as a separate, single unit. In contrast, the altar represents the biblical belief that every individual matters, but he or she matters because of his or her unique place in the larger whole. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 99, The Altar of Jerusalem. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. We begin today with Hanukkah, one of the most famous of Jewish holidays, and also one whose roots are often misunderstood. The first book of Maccabees, which is not part of the Jewish biblical canon, but is still an important source of information, describes the origins of the holiday. The army of the Hasmonean priests, led by the man known as Judah Maccabee, conquered the temple from the pagan Jews and the Seleucids. The altar of the temple was profaned because it had been used for sacrifices to the Greek gods, and a new altar was needed. The story continues, quote, Then Judah detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering which had been profaned, and they thought it best to tear it down, lest it bring reproach upon them, for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. Then they took unhewn stones as the law directs and built a new altar like the former one. What followed the creation of the altar was a Chanukat HaMizbeach, a dedication of the altar. That is the source of the name of the holiday, Chanukah, Dedication. There are, of course, other wonders that became part of the focus of the festival, such as the miracle of the flask of oil. But the holiday was first and foremost a celebration of the altar. What is it about this altar that is so special? Why is celebrating it so important? And why are unhewn stones so essential to create the altar in Jerusalem? The answer to these questions lies in the tale of another altar created at that very site one whose own story brings the book of Samuel to a close. The final story of our biblical book begins with a severe sin committed by David, one which on the face of it might not seem to readers as so severe. Against the advice of Yoav, David chooses to count the people. Chapter 24, verse 2. For the king said to Yoav, the captain of the host, who was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Yoav said to the king, May the Lord thy God add to the people as many more again a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Yoav. What is wrong with counting the members of the people of Israel? Understanding this story will require a return to several of the themes that we engaged during our journey through the Pentateuch. As we discussed in our study of the book of Exodus, When Israel is counted, this is usually accomplished by the giving of a half shekel by each member of the people. As we argued then, the emphasis is on the half. Israel stands before God and is judged by God as part of a people, not only as individuals. The half shekel represents that each Israelite is a half, only complete when connected to the metaphysical unity that is Israel. To count individuals is for the Tanakh to imply otherwise. 
Following David's sin, the prophet God offers David a choice in punishment. Famine, military defeat by Israel's enemies, or three days of plague. David chooses the third in a famous sentence that has made its way into Jewish liturgy. Verse 14. And David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. A terrible plague descends and David beseeches God for an end to the affliction. The prophet informs David that he should purchase land at the summit of Mount Moriah, directly above the city of Jerusalem, and create a center of sacrifice or of offerings at that site. Verse 18, And God came that day to David and said to him, Go up, rear an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite. This, ladies and gentlemen, of course, is the site of the altar of the future temple. While David will not be able to see the edifice of his dream come into being, he will still create the altar of the temple that is yet to be. David purchases the land and builds the altar. Now, what is going on here? Why is this altar the proper reparation for David's sin? The answer must be that if counting his subjects was a way of treating them only as individuals, then the altar embodied the opposite, Israelite unity. As we've noted before, Jerusalem is made up of a unique symbiosis of geography and theology. It is a city shared by the territories of Judah and Benjamin, and therefore an eternal reminder of the Joseph story. When Judah in Egypt, in a great act of repentance and change, willingly offered his life on behalf of his brother Benjamin, in the presence of the vizier of Egypt, which turned out to be Joseph, Joseph, stunned by Judah's sacrifice for Benjamin, forgave his brothers. According to the Talmud, it is precisely on the border between Judah's and Benjamin's territory in Jerusalem that the altar is built. There, the sacrifices of Israel are brought. The message is clear. Where Judah joins Benjamin, where brother sacrifices on behalf of brother, there the divine will dwell. Thus did Judah's original sacrifice for Benjamin become forever the locus of Jewish longing in the Jerusalem that was created by David and Solomon. That is why the psalmist exclaims, Jerusalem is built as a city whose parts are joined together. Meaning, where the house of God is uniquely situated in order to embody the brotherhood of the Jewish people through the union of the territories of Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem thereby becomes a capital that unites nation, faith, and family. This is the allure of that sacred city. The city created by the union of the territories of Judah and Benjamin a city that is thereby a capital for all Israel, illustrates the possibility of appreciating the different members of Israel for their unique gifts, and yet finding therein the means of uniting them all. The construction of an altar embodies not only service of God, but the unity of the people. It is the ultimate symbol of political and covenantal unity among the tribes. The altar that David builds becomes the altar of his son Solomon's temple. And it is on that site that the altar of the temple must forever stand because it is that location that represents the familial core of Jerusalem itself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why the rededication of the altar was so important to Judah the Maccabee, because the altar is Jerusalem. We might note further that, fascinatingly, Churchill cited the words of Judah the Maccabee in a radio address during what is now called Britain's darkest hour, a speech known for the phrase, Be ye men of valor. Churchill cited Judah's words with a slight apparent emendation. Judah said before the assault on Jerusalem, Arm yourselves and be valiant men, and see that ye be in readiness against the morning, that ye may fight with these nations that are assembled together against us 
to destroy us and our sanctuary. And Churchill's version was, quote, Centuries ago, words were written to be a call and a spur to the faithful servants of truth and justice. Arm yourselves and be men of valor, and be in readiness for the conflict, for it is better for us to perish in battle than to look upon the outrage of our nation and our altar. Judah centered on the sanctuary. Churchill mentioned the altar. But in truth, the altar is central to the sanctuary. The altar is the sanctuary. The altar is Jerusalem. And here we might focus on another fact that the book of Maccabees stresses, that every altar must be formed by natural, unhewn stones. In our study of Genesis, we had seen how the Bible emphasizes that the Tower of Babel was built of bricks rather than stones. The same we are later informed could be said for the edifices of Egypt, where Israelite lives were embittered with mortar and brick. Drawing on what my father once said to me, I argued then, in our discussions in Bible 365, that bricks are exactly identical to one another. Each brick contributes in the same way to a building. Each brick could easily be replaced by another. While natural stones are distinctive and matchless, each contributing to a structure's stasis and well-being. These building materials, thus, can represent the way individuals are seen in a society. For Egypt and Babel, the lands of bricks, individuals were replaceable, not precious. But a stone, a natural stone, is unique and essential because it contributes uniquely to the larger whole. We are now able to understand the symbolism of Jerusalem's altar, of Judah's altar, and of David's altar. Why it is the supreme symbol of family unity. David violated the prohibition against numbering Israel. He treated every Israelite as a separate, single unit. In contrast, the altar represents the biblical belief that every individual matters, but he or she matters because of his or her unique place in the larger whole. Thus, the stone altar of Israel, built where Judah joins Benjamin, represents, to paraphrase by Jonathan Sachs, integration without assimilation. The sight of Israelite offerings reminds us simultaneously of our obligation to sacrifice for our brothers, while at the same time, not allowing our brotherhood to efface all individuality. For it is our unique contribution to the whole that is the source of our preciousness and our inviolability. Thus, we can contrast the Jerusalem of natural stone with the bricks of Egypt and Babel in the Bible. Those latter countries can be seen as the predecessors of later totalitarian societies. The building material forbidden by the Bible for the altar, stones shaped by steel, symbolizes the natural individuality of human beings that were cruelly cut off. They hearken every Orwellian age in which people were forcibly formed to fit the needs of the state. It was in counter-reaction to such a politics that the liberal political tradition was developed. This tradition has brought freedom to much of the world. It stresses the inviolability of the individual. But here, too, a danger lies, that in the focus on the individual and on rights rather than responsibilities, the West risks sowing the seeds of its own potential demise, because individualism alone cannot sustain the social fabric of the state. Rabbi Sachs often cited Bertrand Russell, who memorably described why so many great civilizations failed. Russell said, quote, What had happened in the great age of Greece happened again in Renaissance Italy. Traditional moral restraints disappeared because they were seen to be associated with superstition. The liberation from fetters made individuals energetic and creative, producing a rare fluorescence of genius. But the anarchy and treachery which inevitably resulted from the decay of morals made Italians collectively impotent, and they fell like the Greeks, 
under the domination of nations less civilized than themselves, but not so destitute of social cohesion. End quote. The rise of the individual can resist the tyranny of the state. And this is laudable, but a focus only on the individual can also spell the end of society. Jerusalem thus offers in its altar joining Judah and Benjamin both a literal and theoretical middle ground between individualism and collectivism. Jerusalem embodies a polity built on family, where every individual is akin to a natural stone in a structure, and all Israel is akin to an altar, where every brother and sister is loved for what they each uniquely mean to the whole, and therefore for what they each truly are called to be. Thus the drama of the conclusion of the book of Samuel, the book's final verse. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stopped from Israel. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, the moment. So many years after Joseph and Judah were reconciled in Egypt, through the sacrifice of Judah for Benjamin, now David, descendant of Judah, stands on the summit of Mount Moriah, in the silo of a Jebusite farmer. From the walls of the city below ring the anguished cries of its denizens dying from a plague. Assembling an altar from unformed stones, he creates a structure symbolizing Israelite loyalty to one another and to God, and the plague abated. We realize now that stones, in some way, are a theme in David's life. Facing the giant Goliath, a small shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah, took several natural stones from the ground, and with it brought salvation to Israel. It was this shepherd boy who became a king forever associated with Jerusalem. And it was a stone structure that this king built that became a locus of Jewish devotion and embodied the Jewish link to Jerusalem. Not for nothing did David himself celebrate his unlikely story and that of his sacred city with his well-chosen words in Psalms. Even ma suhabunim pina, me'et adunai haitazot, the stone which the builders refused is become the stone of the foundation. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to beginning the Book of Kings together with you tomorrow, signing off.